My name is uh, Thomas Bellamo. You might, I'm usually back here playing the guitar, and, and, and Pastor John asked me to share with you this morning. Um, I'm also the executive director of Love in the Name of Christ. It's a nonprofit here in town, uh, helping people in need. Um, it's a fancy title, but it just basically means that if something goes wrong, um, I'm the one that gets blamed. So, you're right. <laughs> and Terry helps, and yeah, that's true. Um, so when I was talking to Pastor John, um, I asked him what he was going to do for next Sunday uh, for the Christmas service. And he said, well, I think I'm going to preach on the incarnation. I said, okay, I can work with that. So now, Pastor John, if you're watching this, now you're set. You have to preach on the incarnation. Um, and the incarnation is God becoming man, right? We have Fully God, fully man, the two come together. And that's it. Simple concept, right? No. But, but that, that's what it is. So maybe, maybe you don't. I just preached it for you, Pastor John. So, no. <laughs> but what I want to do this morning is take a look at the majesty of God. The magnificence of God. The creator who came down to earth, having a starting point, a launching point um, to go off of as we're now full swing into the Christmas season, as we're looking forward expectantly to celebrate Christ's birthday. Um, And so what I'm going to attempt to do this morning is to take us through a journey of Scripture to look at different aspects of God, but also to see the common theme that's displayed, showing his splendor, showing his glory, his majesty. And by the way, um, when we're talking about magnifying God, that's a synonym, synonym not, not the spice, but the word, synonym, um, for glory. But it's an aspect of glory of looking at God's glory in a way that exalts it, that looks at it. We get magnifying glass, right? We're looking at something to make it look large. Not that we're making God larger than he is, but we're looking at it closely to see him as he really is. And we're going to do that um, by starting looking at at, at Mary's song in Luke chapter 1. Um, when um, this is after Gabriel the angel, the angel uh, came to her and said, hey, by the way, um, you're going to have the Son of God. <laughs> no big deal. Just wanted to give you a heads up. <laughs> All right. And, and so now Mary goes to see Elizabeth. And when they see each other, this is, this is the song that, um, that Mary breaks out in. So let's start in Luke chapter 1, chapter, or verses 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for gathering your church this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you both in song and by um, listening to this message, Lord. And I pray that um, you will go go before the words that are spoken, Lord, that uh, you will work in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that um, any confusion that I might bring that you will straighten out, Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness of my sins, for they are many. I pray, Lord, that uh, this morning would just be a pleasing aroma to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see Mary in a bit of a conundrum. So we know you probably have heard before, is a, it's a pretty common Christ, uh, Christmas message of the expectation that, that Mary could have had from, from the community, the culture around her. For an unwed young lady as herself to be pregnant, at worst meant stoning, and at best meant total ostracization. Life as she knew it should be over. And so she's in this point of going, what do I do? And we see this tension, I think, of, of who am I? This is happening. I need to go. They sent her away to Elizabeth, so she was out of public sight. And what does he choose to do? It's found in the opening lines, and Mary says, said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He knows I'm nothing. What do I have to offer here? For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Do you guys know what a paradox is? A a paradox is two apparent truths. Or two truths that by themselves you can take and, and agree with. And it sounds good. Okay, I understand this and I understand this. But when you put them together, you don't see how they can both exist at the same time. How can both of these be true? For Mary, it was, look at me. Who am I? Look at the comparison, the the lowliest state. I am nothing, and God is everything. And he's chosen me? And then she just explodes in praise. She magnifies, she makes the Lord look great for what he has done because God chose to reveal himself, to reveal his character in this specific way. And she is just overwhelmed 
with joy. Um, my device is acting up. Sorry, that's why I'm a little scattered. And so we have a couple options here of how we can look at Mary. And we can look at history to see traditionally the, the view that, that different faiths and, and, and different religions have of, of, of Mary in the, in the Christian realm, um, especially like Roman Catholicism. They put a very high emphasis on Mary. Mary must be somebody special. They can't live in the tension of the greatness of God and the lowly aspect of a human, so they elevate the human, at least somewhat, to for it to make sense to them. Oh, Mary, you are amazing. And she is. She's blessed. She says, I am blessed. Look what the Lord has done. But Mary herself says, it's not me. It's God who's done it. She lives in that tension of knowing who she is and who God is. Um, and so that brings us to what I think are a couple of the most important things in life of what we're doing. And we see it in how Mary um, expressed herself in her song. Does anybody know who Rene um, Descartes is? You just graduated college, so did you take any philosophy? <laughs> Do you know what he's known for? Putting you on the spot, you didn't. You thought you thought tests in college was all over. Yeah, but he also had a term that he came up with, right? So he he lived in the early 1600s, uh, and he was the the kind of the the father of modern philosophy. And during that time, they were really questioning the existence of God. And what happens when you start questioning the existence of God? You start questioning reality. Because if there's no God, then how did I get here? If I'm here, then there must, what's my purpose? There must not be a purpose, therefore am I real? Or am I just a molecule? Am I an idea in somebody else's brain? And we actually see this thought even to this day with some people out there. But Rene said, he came to the conclusion of, and it's in Latin, you might have heard it, cogito ergo sum. Or rather, I think, therefore, I am. So he's saying that this power of thought, just the fact that I'm processing, that I'm asking these questions, proves that there's something here. <laughs> and it sounds basic and then maybe like a, yeah, duh. But if you get into philosophy, they go down, 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 down these circles in it. I, I talked with somebody after first service and he said he had a professor that said, I think... Therefore, my head hurts. <laughs> and philosophers have a really good uh, job at doing that. So that's what a worldly guy said. But can we back that up with Scripture? And just one example of that is, is found in, in Proverbs 23.7, Solomon, who lived a little bit before Rene did. Just a little bit. And he said, For as he, man, thinks in his heart, so is he. The slight twist to that. But he's saying that what you think about matters. What you believe matters. So that gives me the train of thought that I 
come up with this little saying. Um, I don't memorize very well, so if I make it quirky, sometimes I can remember it. So this is my quirky saying. The most important thing you can think about is what you think about when you think about God. I'll say that again. The most important thing you can think about is what you think about when you think about God. The second most important thing you can think about is who you are in light of what you think about God. It's my conviction that everything and how you live your life will proceed directly out of the sum of those two thoughts. How you live your life, the choices that you make, how you think, hinge on those two very important things. And usually what it comes down to is, I'm going to magnify one of two things. It's either going to be myself, I'm pretty great, or it's God. I think you might know which side um, we're going to go this morning, hopefully. But backing up just a, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, what comes into your head, going back to the most important thing, when I say God or Jesus, when you hear that name, what about the second thing, the third thing? What about those corners in your heart that struggles with the certain aspects or the uncertainty that you have about God? The ones that you don't really want to think about, maybe. The good things and the not-so-good things. I think we all have those, right? And so, that's a chance, I believe, to see a paradox in action of how we handle those difficulties. We can refuse to look at them and kind of throw our hands up and say, I don't know. And I'm just going to give up trying to understand. We'll go into this a little uh, deeper later. Or we can lean into that mystery. We can lean into asking the questions of, what's really going on here? Who is God? Do I have the right view? Do I have the right thought of who he is? And if not, what do I need to change? Am I willing to submit myself to discover who he is even when it makes me uncomfortable? So my hope this morning is again to go on that journey to look at God's majesty, to see how he presents himself, and then to look at who we are in light of that. And that was a hard decision. I spent um, way too long trying to decide where to go and because I could have just read pure scripture, I think, this entire time. And hopefully I don't have too many scriptures for you. Hopefully you stick with me. But I want to start by going to the very beginning of Genesis 1. Genesis 1, 1. Now what we know about Genesis is it's most, it's a, it's, uh, most scholars agree that Moses wrote Genesis when he was in the desert with the Israelites leading them out of the Exodus. And that happened quite a bit after the beginning of the world. <laughs> so there, he didn't have a first-hand account. But what 
I think might have happened. It's fun to think about. This isn't from the text, so don't take this as gospel truth. But I think the Israelites were out there and they're going, Moses, we've been in Egypt for 400 years and we've heard our stories a little bit here and there handed down. But we've been surrounded by these Egyptians and these other cultures that tell us how we got here. How did we really get here? How was the world created? And so I think part of that time that Moses spent on the mountain, God said, I'll tell you what happened. But before we read that section, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the culture that the Israelites found themselves in. In that um, Egyptian, early Mesopotamia era, that there was a couple of other creation stories during that time. Um, and, and if I went into detail about telling you what it said, I'd be kicked out of the church because... Um, <laughs> it's extremely graphic and X-rated and just ridiculous in many ways. If you conjured up in your head the cheesiest soap opera <laughs> and the, uh, the, the, the most out-there sci-fi movie and the most epic fantasy novel that you can, you've ever read and combined them all together, you might get about halfway there about what these creation stories look like. But there's a common themes, and, and, and just so for brevity's sake, the main points of them was that um, their main god was the sun. Moon was a lesser god. There were other gods. Um, but they were far. They were distant. They were easy to get mad. They weren't quite sure how to make them happy. So they did all a whole bunch of weird stuff. You know, it got mad, so the sun's shining brighter, burns up their, their crops. Oh, no, what do we do? Let's go do some weird stuff. <laughs> okay? So that, that's kind of the, the, the culture in a nutshell, very, very, very rough nutshell. But within that, those cultures had a couple of distinct and massive fears. If your God's the sun, and you see everything through that, and the blessings of your sun god, what would be your greatest fear? What happens when you take away the sun? Darkness. When it's dark, the god's not there. He's taking a nap. <laughs> okay? They didn't have flashlights. When I, was a, when I was a contractor, you know, I had, I like lights. It's kind of weird, you know, I, that, these big tripod lights with a, you know, cordless battery, and I plug it in and push a button, and boom, spotlight, you know. I've got a flashlight that fits in my pocket that can go half a mile down the road. I have one in, in my, in my, on my phone. We don't lack light in our day and age. The only light they had back then was either the sun or the moon or some form of fire. And fire doesn't make that good a light to see by doesn't go very far. It's bright and it hurts your eyes and you can't direct it well. By the way, it's an interesting note when, um, as they were leaving Egypt, when God led them at night by a pillar of fire in night, what is he saying? What's night have on him? But I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> the other big fear was the ocean, the deep. They didn't have big boats 
They didn't have scuba tanks. They didn't have goggles. They couldn't see what's going on. They knew there was fish and things. And do you remember what happened to Joe when he went swimming that one time and that thing came up and nabbed him? And no more Joe. Okay? (laughs) We don't know what's going on. Only the crazy people go out there. We don't want anything to do with that. And when the sun god's mad, he sends these storms and it wreaks havoc and the ocean is scary. Darkness is scary. So what does God have to say about that? And that's, I believe, why Genesis is set up a little different, why it seems like it repeats itself, especially in the beginning. Because the first few verses, I believe, God is saying something to his people. He says, I know what you're living in. I know what the beliefs are around it. And this is God's decree. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Are you identifying the fears? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, even with my description that I went through, are you picking up? On some themes here, a little deeper meaning. What is God saying? That in spite of what's going on around you and what the culture believes, God's proclaiming something, isn't he? Now we add in, and we're going to dig in a little bit. We're going to talk about the Hebrew language. And and I love Hebrew, and I hate Hebrew, and it's extremely (laughs) difficult. And um, (laughs) it's... it's, um, it didn't arise as a written language for a lot for a long time after it was spoken. So a lot of it was developed on, with imagery because you're just talking with each other. So I'd say, "Hey, hey, Harvey, that's a that's a nice that's some nice clothes you have." And I do this, and you know, I'm talking about a shirt. Now, how do you do this on a piece of parchment? <laughs> I don't know. So, so sorry, that was a big rabbit trail. Didn't mean to do that, but. With that imagery in mind, Hebrew is supposed to put images in your head. It describes something more than just one English word can express. So I want to look at a couple of those to go a little bit deeper in this passage. And the first one is created, which is bara in Hebrew. It's again, if you've done much studying in Latin, it's ex nihilo, and it's kind of a big deal. The Jewish scholars said that he could spend days talking about the significance of what out of nothing means. In the beginning, God, out of nothing, everything. When there was nothing, it was me, and only me, until I said otherwise. Unlike the stories that the Israelites heard in Egypt of... um, Boy, what's one? The stars were created when the, when, when, when the gods were at war and one of them cut each other in half and the blood sprayed and the stars were formed. So that's how things happened. God saying, no, 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 no. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was no light. And there was the ocean, the deep. Two biggest fears. Which brings us to um, the second word, which is rahaf. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. 
Now, this word is supposed to evoke an image of a mother hen brooding over her chicks, her wings outstretched and hovering. Hovering over what? What's the point God's trying to make in this prelude to Genesis? Well, what kind of a God must he be? If he's there hovering like a brooding hen over your deepest fears, your darkest night, saying, it's all me. It's starting and it's controlled and is created by me. And I have complete control over it. And then with a whisper of a word, God said, let there be light. And there was light. No other gods. Elohim himself is proclaiming, I did it all. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Because there are no other gods. separating light from darkness. Oh, there's some significance there, but that's another rabbit trail. Don't have time for that. So with looking at who God is, hopefully we're magnifying him a little bit. Does that have some commonality with where we're at today in our belief system? In your mind, you know, we don't have fanciful Egyptian creation stories, but what do we have? that God's hovering over. So if that's our almighty God, who are we? And what's our relationship to that? What's his relationship towards humankind? Because again, God's way out there. Humans were just a weird thing that got created and God really doesn't have much to do with them. Very distant, very separate. Well, let's jump down to Genesis 2 and verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, excuse me, became a living creature. You're starting to see the big picture here. The God who hovers over and has complete control over your greatest fears. The biggest events in history. What's he do when it comes to mankind? Is Adam created from an aloof place where God's far off and says, okay, there's a person. As a byproduct of a war between gods... But can you conjure up a picture that's more intimate than the creator and sustainer of the universe breathing into Adam's nostrils and giving him life? Does it get any closer than that? Can we see any more intent with God than that? I I can't come up with one. So great, Thomas, that that happened in the beginning. That happened at creation. Adam was perfect. So then what happened? Because we know the fall happened. We're separated from God. But God always made a way, didn't he? 
So what else is there? I love the book of Job. What a deep study. But just you can mine for years in the truths that are there. And Job was written before Genesis. They believed that it was the first book of the Bible written. Um, and Job says in, in, in chapter 27, verse 3, As long as my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. And then his buddy Elihu, a few more chapters down in 33, says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. And they're saying this in the most adverse times of their life when everything for Job has been taken away. He says, those things don't give me life. Those things don't sustain me. It's God. He is my very breath. And I will only die when he takes his breath away from me. Okay, we've had enough of the Old Testament. We can keep going if you want. I love the Old Testament. All right. Um, let's move forward. So there's God the Father. I'm not going. I'm trying not to encroach too much on the incarnation here, but I'm going to a little bit. So come back next week. Um, John chapter one. You guys should know this. In the beginning, what was the Word? Who was Word? Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see the parallels here? What's John saying? What, what's up with Jesus? He's everything. He was the one. The word spoke light into existence. So let's magnify Jesus a little bit. One of my favorite um, sections in, in the New Testament is, is Colossians 1, 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. How much is all things? In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Did he leave anything out? Who is this Jesus? This Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, God himself, the same God we find in Genesis 1 all the way to the end and so much more. And, and, and the parallels don't stop there. So I love about the Bible. There's a theme that runs all the way through. The short answer is it's all about Jesus. The cross extends both ways throughout time. What about the breathing stuff? Is there any breathing stuff in the New Testament? Yes, there is. John 20. I love John. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This was, um, back up a little bit, this was um, after the resurrection. Jesus appeared to the disciples, getting ready for the final send-off. And when he had said this, he breathed on them 
and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed life into them again. We know that we are a new creation in Christ, that the Holy Spirit regenerates us, that the Holy Spirit, pneuma, is a Greek word, means wind, means breath. It's our very existence, folks. It's the only reason that we encounter God is through the Holy Spirit. That isn't judgment and wrath. So thousands of years later, here's this God-man repeating the same story and giving them and us new life. How can it be? How can we reconcile those greatnesses of, of, of who I am, of who God is, where Mary's at in just utter, overwhelmed awe? And I think a way to, to navigate that is to be sincere and authentic in our life, in our, our spiritual life of who we are. In, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. At first look, that looks like, well, is that just Old Testament legalism again? I have to be perfect to see God? We know the Sunday school answer is, well, yes, but it's Jesus' perfectness in us, right? But there's something deeper here, I think, in that term, pure in heart. And in the Greek, pure can have um, like a meandering meaning. And for example, um, we think of, of a pane of glass. And, and if you ever... Um, like old, like colonial homes, like the leaded glass, how it's all wavy and there's inclusions in it and dirty spots. That's not pure glass. And you can hide behind it and it's hard to see. And so if we look at ourselves and our spirits, are we, are we deceiving ourselves by what we're looking at and, and not looking at the inclusions and the dirty spots and the rough spots and that gobble of mud? Or are we going to be real with ourselves, be pure, be clean, and say, this is who I am? It's an imperfect analogy because part of that is is accepting my flaws. There's a paradox there. Being pure in heart doesn't mean being perfect. It means being authentic and relying on Christ. And allowing him to work in us, to allow his ultimate purity to reign in us, and not fooling ourselves for who we are. So, how do we go from here? What do we do? How do we live our lives? If we jump down a little bit more from Colossians, um, here's. Here's probably my, my, my life verses here. And he, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Nothing above him, nothing 
greater. Nothing more important, nothing more magnificent than Him. I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm, I'm hoping that these words, the, the, these scripture verses, f- fill us with a little bit of awe and wonder. And, and maybe we can almost disassociate from it a little bit of like, that's too big for me to understand. How can that be? And I'm here supposed, and I'm supposed to worship him? How is that supposed to work? I'm glad you asked. It's one of Pastor John's lines. Um, Hebrews chapter 10. Because of all this that, that, that uh, the writer of Hebrews was talking about, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, there's a lot here I'm going to skip through, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, This is what Christ wants us to do. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith that our hearts, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see the majesty of Christ Christ here? Do you see the paradox of who I am and who he is? And his desire for us to draw near in that tension. I mean, there's so many verses that we could go to. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For I am meek and lowly of heart. It goes on and on and on. We see this paradox of greatness and humbleness. So, this is the last verse we're going to share. I'm going to share with you, I promise. Then I'll just talk a little bit, just a little bit. 1 Peter 2, 2 through 5. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Are we longing? Who Mom's here. When a baby is mom it is longing for milk, <laughs> watch out, right? If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, there's an experience here, people. It just doesn't live in our heads. Something happens, and then we exude it. We live it out. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a spiritual, to be a holy priesthood. That's you. It's us to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, if when we taste and we see, when we have the experience, when we savor the paradox of God's majesty, it turns into true and ultimate worship. When we are in awe of what he has done, when we can come here, living stones, God's temple doesn't, God's temple doesn't exist in Jerusalem. It exists here in us. Together. 
And, and, and we can be confident in that because there's, there's something I think that's miraculous when we all come here. We, we prayed at, at early morning um, this, this morning about for, for other people because it can be hard during the holidays, during the Christmas season. Loved ones have been lost for some of us. Um, there's been loss in other ways. Um, it's, it's, this can be a really convoluted time. And then there's joy mixed in there, hopefully. And I know some of us today, there's, there's people on both ends of the spectrum, I'm sure. People that came in praising God, who are full of blessings, cloud nine, life is great. And then we have people that are, just drugged themselves through the door, battered and bloody. But there is something in you that said, I need to go to church. There's something that I need to be a part of. I need to be with God's people and I need to be with God. And together you raised your voices and you worshiped because something has happened. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that he has taken our sins. He has made it possible for us to approach his throne. And we enter in this Christmas season, hopefully with that little bit of awe of wondering how can it be. So let's magnify God with um, one more song and then as we go into a week, as we're looking towards Christmas next week. So Father God, thank you so much. Um, for this day, for you bringing your church together, Lord. You are building your kingdom with us as living stones. I pray, Lord, that um, for everyone struggling, that you will remind them of who you made them, of you can breathe into them that fresh air, that your Holy Spirit will remind them that, like Job, their life, is only dependent on you and that you are worth that clinging onto that hope, that desperation. Thank you for um, your word that you've revealed yourself in such majestic ways. And we look forward to when we see you face to face and we see it in its fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.